Support for Under the Radar comes from Wellwithall. Wellwithall believes that self-care is community care. Premium products crafted for your daily wellness, from sleep support to heart health to your daily regimen. 20% of Wellwithall's profits are committed to leading the fight for health equity. They won't stop until it is truly Wellwithall. Under the Radar to me means authenticity, not being filtered. It's a window in on the local stories that touch our lives. And there's a huge void in the traditional media covering this new faces of Boston. You may not be looking for a particular story, but when you hear about it, you're engaged. Under the radar means ahead of the curve. It's also perspectives. How does this particular story affect a community or a neighborhood? I'm Callie Crossley. This week on Under the Radar with Callie Crossley, quick. Which state official is in charge of elections, oversees the census process for the state, and determines access to public records? You'll be forgiven if you don't know that it's the Secretary of State. William Galvin has held the office for 24 years, successfully fending off the occasional challenger. But Galvin will not celebrate his 25th anniversary in the role if Republican Anthony Amore, head of security at the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum, or Josh Zakem, Democrat Boston City Councilor, have anything to do with it. Later in the show, a talk with Harvard's new tenured professor in Native American history helps us frame the current issues like tribal sovereignty. A conversation with Professor Philip Deloria. But first, joining me is Boston City Councilor Josh Zakem to talk about his campaign challenging William Galvin for the position of Secretary of State. Hello, City Councilor. Hello, Callie. How are you? I'm fine. Um, we should put on the table that I invited Anthony Amore, who really wanted to come, but he had work obligations and could not. Um, and we'll talk about where he stands on the main issue. And then also Secretary of State William Galvin, we reached out to him many, 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 many times and received no response. Um, and I think uh, listeners should know that. So here you are, mm -hmm. and we're going to talk to you about why you want the job, what's at stake here, and uh, also try to get some, a little bit of sound from William Galvin from other events that he's attended, and maybe we can get give people a sense of, you know, actually where he's coming from. So first, before you tell me your qualifications, your credentials, why do you want the job? It's an important role, as you were just explaining. I think a lot of people don't know how important the role of Secretary of State is in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. And, you know, I'm in my third term on the Boston City Council right now, and I've been privileged to chair our committee on civil rights. And to my mind, uh, one of our most important civil rights, one of our civil rights that is under threat these days is the right to vote. And Massachusetts has fallen far behind under Secretary Galvin's leadership, or lack thereof, in the Secretary of State's office. We have gone as 17 states in the District of Columbia have same-day voter registration. Massachusetts does not. 13 states have enacted automatic voter registration. Massachusetts does not. Turnout rates in non-presidential years have dropped by almost a third in the last 20 years. That's as our population has grown. Voting has gone down. There's nearly 700,000 eligible residents who are not registered to vote in Massachusetts. We need a Secretary of State who's going to do everything that he or she can to address these issues, to encourage more engagement, but more importantly, to lower these unnecessary legal barriers like our 20-day registration deadline uh, for access to the ballot. So... Just name one thing you think you could do better than he has done thus far. You've named a number of issues that need to be addressed, and we'll go into that a little bit more. But one thing that you think bringing what you call a fresh and bold look to this job would do. 
Yeah. Um, same day voter registration, the easiest thing. Um, that's something that Secretary Galvin is, uh, continues. There's a court case, Chelsea Collaborative versus Galvin, that he is uh, in court defending our 20-day voter registration deadline. I would work immediately to institute a same-day registration system, the same as 17 states and D.C., including uh, New Hampshire, Connecticut, Maine, our New England neighbors, um, something that's long overdue in Massachusetts. Well, let's explain that because what we have now, and I think a lot of people didn't realize these, how long, the long periods of time that Mm -hmm. they had or how short they were, depending on how you look at it, for early voting. And some people just got left out by not registering in time. So in Massachusetts, we have this 20-day period of time. And some people said, hey, this really is not working. This is not fair. This really goes against allowing everybody to be able to vote in their time. So I talk about that a little bit and why uh, the Superior Court said, yeah, we agree with you. But Secretary Galvin has said he's opposed to that. Yeah. Well, you know, the 20-day deadline is, uh, it's not the longest in the country, but it's certainly on the longer side. And uh, the ACLU, which uh, brought this case along with uh, individual residents uh, of Chelsea, who had been denied their fundamental right to vote simply because of a 20-day deadline. And the Superior Court judge, I think rightfully, said that rule is arbitrary and unconstitutional. There is no legal, technical, financial reason for this to happen. And he very approvingly cited some of the well over a dozen states that have this system to show that it's technically feasible. The estimates I've seen for the cost institute, it would be a million and a half dollars for the entire state. Um, And the results are dramatic. Turnout rates increase across the board, but they really increase among communities of color, younger people, lower income communities, a lot of folks who don't always participate in our elections at the same rate that they're in the population. And I think folks whose voices need to be at the table. We need to be having a political discussion where everyone has a voice and a role. Do you have a sense of, because I, I'm, I'm certain I do, of why he's opposed to the... Oh, if Secretary Galvin were here, I'd love to ask him that. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've challenged him to a series of uh, forums and debates so that we could discuss our differing views on many of the core functions of the office. And he continues um, to refuse to rebuff those invitations. I know he's gotten them, but um, I don't. I can't explain why he won't be here to defend these positions. Um, and as we said, we've tried many, many times to, to get him to respond. Now, I should mention that your Republican opponent who is running unopposed, um, so whoever wins the primary on September 4th will will face him, has said that he, too, brings a fresh and bold look. So apparently both of you think that wherever Secretary Galvin is, is not fresh and is not bold. Uh, and, and he cites, for those who are curious, uh, his background as a security professional. He's head of security at Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum. As we know, there are many issues now that we're looking at in terms of security of the voting process, and he believes that he can bring a special expertise, actually, to that. How do you respond to that? Well, I certainly agree that we need to improve our election security systems in Massachusetts. Uh, The Centers for American Progress last year did a 50-state survey of election security, and Massachusetts only got a C. Um, it's barely passing grade. Uh, you know, I was not always a straight A student, but I tried to uh, do better. I certainly, if I brought a C home, it was not a it was not a good day uh, mm-hmm. with my parents. So we need to do better. We need to be tapping into, I think, the security and cybersecurity expertise that we have just in Massachusetts from our great research institutions, uh, sometimes from the private sector, to say we know that others are going to be trying to mess with our systems, that people are clearly targeting elections in America to undermine our democracy. We saw what happened in 2016. Mm -hmm. Uh, We need to be proactive. We need a secretary of state, I think, who is more familiar with the digital terrain, who is willing to look outside of Beacon Hill, outside of government for the best ideas that we have, especially on such a cutting-edge, changing issue like cybersecurity. Let's listen to something that he said 
This was a session that was hosted by the JP Progressives on February 13th. We were officially informed by Homeland Security that we were not the subject of hacking. And that's not because I'm a friend of Putin or anything like that. It has everything to do with the fact that I think our system was not on the internet, it's secure. But I also believe very seriously that hacking or efforts to disrupt elections are not over. And I'm not sure it's going to be Donald Trump or the, or the Russians or anybody else. It could be just amateurs. The fact of the matter is, is when you have an electronic system, you have to protect it. Okay, so he's saying he understands that there's threats to that security. I, and I think everyone understands there's threats to security. That's no uh, nothing uh, unique. But the problem is how are we addressing it? Mm-hmm. And the fact that in 2017, Massachusetts got a C, which put us behind many states, including Oregon, which has a lot of the other electoral reforms we have in pl- that we are trying to do, has put them in place. Uh, we need to do better. Uh, the fact that you know, we have a system that is vulnerable. Our central voter file is exactly what the Department of Homeland Security said is vulnerable. And uh, we need to make sure we're protecting that. And I think that means changing some of our procedures. And that means a willingness to look outside of government, outside the secretary's office, and acknowledge that just because you've been there a quarter century doesn't mean you have all the answers. If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and here with me is Boston City Councilor Josh Zakem, who is one of two candidates running for Secretary of State against 24-year incumbent William Galvin. Well, what would you do? What do you, since we got to see, how would you get us to A? Oh, absolutely. I, th- <laughs> I, I think there's a couple of simple common sense steps that many private sector companies and some governments have put in place, you know, talking about only one person in the office is going to have access to that system. Two-factor authentication, which for those of you that use Gmail and uh, even Facebook has become quite prevalent to prevent hacking, saying that we're not going to allow downloads to any computers that are hooked up to the central voter file, making sure you're removing your thumb drive access points, turning off the Wi-Fi on the machines. These are simple things that cost actually zero dollars, and for a little investment in ongoing monitoring so that you can know and backing up our systems, and you think backing it up more as we get closer to Election Day when I think there's a heightened risk of attack. But there are professionals, many of whom actually in my current city council district uh, of businesses that have started, and we go and talk to them when they open the office, and they say, we'd like to be good corporate citizens. How can we help? Do you want us to put our T-shirts on and clean up a playground? We'll be happy to do it, but we have expertise, and we really want to help both the city and the state uh, defend against these threats. Now, he said that whatever system is protective of the voting process must have some kind of fail-safe with paper. Are you concerned about that? So Massachusetts does paper for balloting. Mm-hmm. We do have paper ballots, um, which is great. I think most states that had over the years drifted to electronic are now coming back mm-hmm. um, to have the paperback. So that's absolutely important for the actual voting itself. But our central voter file, which is where the registration information mm-hmm. for our millions of registered voters is kept, you know, is in, is electronic. Um, I don't know of any state that does it all on paper, given the millions mm-hmm. of things. So, But it needs to be backed up. And I think as you get closer to Election Day, we have to be backing it up more often and more often because folks have attempted. Uh, the Department of Homeland Security mm-hmm. reported about two dozen attempted uh, incursions into central voter files. Uh, they didn't name all the states that were impacted, but it's clearly a threat that we need to address. Josh Jacob, I want to let everybody know that you represent District 8 currently, and that includes Back Bay, Beacon Hill, West End, Fenway, Kenmore, and since 2014, Mission Hill, just so people know who you are in the, in the space of, of Boston uh, city politics. Now, on March the 22nd of this year, Secretary uh, William Galvin and members of the Massachusetts Election Modernization Coalition, this is right where you live, right, held a press conference about the automatic uh, voter registration bill that he was supporting. Let's take a listen. 
where there'll be two important opportunities for Massachusetts citizens to automatically register. One will be the registry of motor vehicles, which I mentioned already, and the other is mass health. Uh, and the reason mass health is an important opportunity is because of the number of people that it covers, but also the reliability of the data that they would be presenting to us. That is to say, they vet their clients very carefully. Persons who deal with mass health obviously have to provide them with a lot of background information. We had to resolve issues uh, relating to whether that information could be transferred from mass health to us. Uh, I want to thank uh, Joyce Hackett in particular for her diligence in trying to get an opinion on that, and uh, I'm very satisfied with that. Having said that, I'm therefore very happy to endorse the concept of the bill and so the bill itself. I think it's fair to say you were underwhelmed by his stepping out to support this bill. Well, I think after uh, years of opposing automatic voter registration to uh, come out and give it a so-called endorsement um, just in the middle of an election campaign when your opponent uh, has been pushing that issue. Uh, we worked on this in the Boston City Council. Uh, we passed resolutions. We called on our state legislators to pass this, you know, well before this campaign began. Uh, I filed a bill in Boston that Mayor Walsh signed a couple weeks ago. That's sort of a mini automatic registration. It allows that when folks have routine interactions with the city of Boston, a resident parking permit, a library card, et cetera, we're going to offer you the opportunity to register to vote. So not only have I supported automatic voter registration for a long time, much longer while Secretary Galvin was opposing it. But we've legislated in Boston, and we've addressed some of these issues already. And the Secretary's had a, a nearly a quarter century to, to address some of these issues to make it easier for people to register. And you know, I'm certainly glad that in the context of this campaign, he's changing his views once again. But um, you know, it's long overdue. I think what he said, and you, you can respond to this, is that um, he, he mentioned mass health and he mentioned the registry of motor vehicles as two kind of pristine places for which people's data would be vetted. So, you know, that's good data and we know who they are. He's a little bit snarky about the library sign up that you that you supported in your little mini automatic voter registration. I want you to address that. To speak yeah. To that. Well, I haven't heard him say anything uh, about our bill because uh, he chooses not to uh, to engage uh, in discussions. But, you know, the same situation. Uh, it's you're getting a library card. Um, and we're going to say, here's a voter registration form. It's the same form that you would otherwise fill out because until automatic registration is passed, that's as far as cities and towns can go. I think his issue is about the security of that, or is that, is that a real vetting, the library, as well, opposed to mass health or the Well, I think, uh, like many things, that mm -hmm. it just exhibits um, the confusion on Secretary Galvin's part for what the legislation is. I would encourage him to read it. It's uh, about a page and a half, um, so it shouldn't be too difficult for him. But it is uh, saying that when you have routine interaction, we are going to give you a current voter registration form that Secretary Galvin himself actually has created and processed. So if he has a problem with the safeguards in our current registration system, I think that's something that is within his power to fix and something I would have hoped he would have addressed long before. Well, one of the things he does say, and I, I want you to just hear this from him, I want to say to to everyone who's listening that we're spending some time on the election process, but that's just one piece of this job. This job is huge. Elections obviously are very important. But this is the reason that he said at the same uh, press conference why he felt it was important to get a vote on this bill, this automatic uh, voter registration bill, which as far as I know, is sitting in the legislature, but it does not look like it's going to move forward. So here is Secretary Galvin on this bill. I want to say that it's extremely important that we get this enacted this year because the concept here and the advocates and I all agree we're shooting for 2020 to have this in place for 2020, recognizing the significance of that upcoming presidential election. But to do that and make it effective, we really have to have it passed in 2018. 
The legislative session will end in July. It's important that we be, reach final passage by that date. That will give us the opportunity to begin working in 2019 to make sure this bill reaps the fruit of the effort, that we get the people who are participating at the Registry of Motor Vehicles and also the people who will be participating uh, through Mass Health. Okay, so where are we with that bill? It's just sitting yep. there, right? It's, it's just sitting there. Mm -hmm. And I think, uh, you know, if the secretary felt that it was urgent to pass it, he should have come out in support of this at least as early as I did, as the Boston City Council did, as many of the advocates that I think if you ask folks at uh, Common Cause or Mass Vote or the other members of the Modernization Coalition, uh, they had a hard time even sitting down uh, with the secretary to talk about this until this campaign began. And I agree, it is urgent. We're long overdue. 13 mm -hmm. states have passed automatic registration. 17 states in D.C. have passed same-day voter registration. So we are way behind, and I think that is a result of a, a failure of leadership in the Secretary of State's office. Do you think most people would be surprised where Massachusetts is on some of these issues? Because we have a reputation of sort of being forward-thinking. Mm -hmm. People are always surprised, uh, both <laughs> in the fact of how many folks who are eligible aren't registered, how low our turnout rates have sunk over the last two decades, and the fact that we're behind. I mean, the Kentucky Secretary of State, former Kentucky Secretary of State, had to come up to Massachusetts a couple weeks ago to lobby our legislature for automatic voter registration. I mean, that's sort of uh, mind-blowing when you think about it, and it's, it's, it's about democracy. It's not a partisan issue. It shouldn't be. It's about if you have the right to vote, we should be lowering these unnecessary barriers. And when we talk about who is a seat at the table, that's reflected in who we elect. Um, you know, we have a 40-member state Senate. There's one senator of color right now. After this election cycle, yes. we're going to be down, I think, to 10 senators who are women. Uh, that's not representative uh, of the Commonwealth. Um, I'm proud to say the city of Boston, our city council, is becoming more representative. Mm -hmm. We have six uh, women of color right now out of 13 members. I'm still the only Jewish city councilor. <laughs> but... You know, that's part of when we're setting the rules of who gets to participate. That's reflected in who's elected and what policies are implemented. All right. Let me I'm going to come back to some other election issues, but I want to move on to public records, because now this is one where it really is hard to fathom that Massachusetts is in the state that it is in with regard to public records. This, too, is overseen by the secretary of state. So in case you're just tuning in, the secretary of state, it's about the voter process in all of its iterations, and it's also about access to public records. So what has uh, Secretary Galvin been doing or not doing that you feel you can do better? I think, number one, you know, the fact that in numerous bipartisan surveys, Massachusetts ranks near the bottom, if not the very bottom, on access to public records. The average cost for a public records request is over $3,000 in Massachusetts. That's a bill to an individual, to a reporter, to a researcher. It's unacceptable. And ultimately, we need to change these laws. We need to reform our public records laws, and that's through the legislature. But even under the current statute, Secretary Galvin has a lot of discretion in ordering government agencies, and that can be from a town school committee up to the governor's office, to revise those costs that they're putting on people, to turn over documents that they think uh, that they don't want to, that they might not want to. And unfortunately, time and time again, uh, Secretary Galvin has erred on the side of secrecy, has come down the side of secrecy, forcing organizations um, and individuals, folks like the Boston Globe, other news organizations, to go to court to get the records that we're all entitled to. And I mean, just in December, uh, the Superior Court overruled Secretary Galvin's determination and ordered many local police departments to turn over records of their own officers who had been arrested to the papers. Um, these are clearly public records, and the fact that we have to rely on private institutions to stand up for us is unacceptable. That's what a Secretary of State should be doing. Now, he's said that because one of the big suggestions, of course, is let's turn this over to the attorney general when there are disputes about it. And he said that's not efficient or 
the way to go. I think up until uh, Attorney General Healy took office, there had been almost zero referrals to the Attorney General. Uh, it shows a real lack of initiative um, and a lack of a shirking of responsibility in the Secretary of State's office. The process set up in the law is not perfect, but that process is for the supervisor of public records in the Secretary's office to make a determination. And if the responding agency disagrees, then you go to court. And like any other you know, state agency, the Attorney General represents us, and, and that's the process we have. And you lose all the battles you don't fight. If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and here with me is Boston City Councilor Josh Zakem, who is one of two candidates running for Secretary of State against the 24-year incumbent William Galvin. Anthony Amore, who is the Republican candidate, uh, could not be here. He wanted to be here because of work obligations. Uh, we could not get a response from William Galvin's office after many, many, many tries. No response. I just want everybody to know that's why he's not here, and that's why I'm playing some clip from his uh, the few times that he's uh, been speaking out during this campaign. Um, he's had only one other opponent in 2006 whom he beat. This is John Bonovitz, and that was it. The, the vote was 87 to 15 percent, something like 87 percent to 15 percent. That's pretty lopsided. So uh, lots of people have stayed away from this, Josh Zakem, because it doesn't look like it's winnable. But you're in it. Well, listen, I, I think it's incredibly important. I think uh, when we have disagreements about the core functions of the office, and in many ways some of the core functions of our democracy, who is participating, who is getting access to public records to hold our elected officials accountable, people need to stand up. And I think after nearly a quarter century of complacency, of maintaining and administering a status quo, people in Massachusetts are ready for someone who is going to be a leader in this office, who has a record of standing up to powerful interests, who has a record of being a progressive leader, who is going to be making sure that we're using what levers of power we have, particularly in 2018 with a hostile president who is attacking our Massachusetts values day in and day out, that we're going to stand up to protect the people of Massachusetts, but also to continue to be a leader for people across the country, the way Massachusetts has led from the original resistors of the revolution to health care reform to marriage equality. We need to be standing up on these issues. And right now we're not. So you proposed six debates, which he never responded right. to you about. I mean, this comes down to our public servants responsive to their constituents. And it would seem not in this. I want to uh, play this clip where he uh, says that he's been very available and out there on the campaign trail. So here he is speaking to the JP progressives earlier this year. First of all, we have been at multiple events recently. Uh, I'll also tell you, just you should know, and everyone else should know, uh, I can tell you the number of instances where I was asked by Democratic committees for a joint appearance. And I said, yes, Mr. Sakem, in every case, I said no. So, I mean, I'll be happy to talk to him. I have not answer the same questions, uh, whatever. I, I have no hesitancy to do that, especially in the run-up to our convention. Yeah. Uh, I'm, and I, I've always done that. Uh, I have to be honest. I mean, I've been out there advocating for the same position. My position didn't change, and I haven't been hiding for the last year. So I assume he means you've been hiding for the last year? Or I, I, I don't understand. Maybe he's been accused of that. I don't know. No, right. So has he been everywhere that there's a net? Did you turn down joint appearances with him? No. You know, I think if, if Secretary Galvin counts being in the same room as each other as a debate, then sure, we've had a few of those. But no, he has uh, completely refused to respond to our invitations. I approached him when we did happen to be in the same room. Uh, and I asked, did you get our invitation? It had been about, I think at that point, a month and a half. And he said, yes. And that was it. So... You know, I think it's a, it shows a real disdain for the voters, uh, for the democratic process. I think it's not 
a good look for any candidate, but certainly for our chief elections officer. And I think if you look historically, Secretary Galvin has uh, typically been afraid to debate his opponents. And if he's doing such a great job, but he's got um, been there for 24 years, I don't know why he's afraid to defend these positions. Um, it's one thing to speak up and say what you've been doing, but to have to answer questions about why Massachusetts has fallen so far behind on these core functions of his office under his administration. Um, I understand why he doesn't want to have a debate, but that doesn't excuse it, and that doesn't mean it's healthy for our democracy or respectful to the voters. Well, he called you sneaky at one point, uh, Josh Sakem, I should put on the table, saying that uh, you ran for office this last time to be a Boston city councilor and did not alert um, your constituents that, in fact, you were going to run for a secretary of state, and you knew that when you ran for office for Boston City Councilor. Uh, please respond. Sure. Um, that's just untrue. Um, you know, I made the decision to run for this uh, office uh, well after the fact, um, and we announced, I think, the last week in November after Thanksgiving when I had an opportunity to talk to my family, and it's because no one was standing up to the bullying from Secretary Galvin to, uh, you know, talking about how we need a leader with integrity, talking about someone who, you know, is not using... Uh, government resources to run a political campaign. I think that's sneaky. Um, you know, what we're doing is we're talking about opening up this process and we're talking about bringing people into our democracy, expanding the franchise and saying, if you have the right to vote, we're going to let you participate in this. And it's high time after 24 years of essentially no opposition that someone calls to account the action or rather inaction of Secretary Galvin's administration. Now, the other thing that an incumbent gets is are certain advantages. He's got 24 years of advantage. But he gets to set, because he's the Secretary of Day, State, the date of the primary, which is September 4th, the day after Labor Day, which means that when you back up for early voting, you're in the middle of August, which is pretty much a holiday month for a lot of people in Massachusetts. Mm -hmm. Respond? Well, that's if we even get early voting well, uh, in this true. primary. Okay. Um, you know, Secretary Galvin, I think it's outrageous setting the date the day after Labor Day for the first time in the Commonwealth's history that we're having the primary, the statewide primary then. Okay, I just want to say that he said he had issues because he's working around the Jewish holiday. Continue. Yeah. So that's, you know, that's why the law gave him the flexibility to move it, but they could have had it any one of 14 days between the 4th or the 18th. The League of Women Voters suggested Thursday the 13th. I suggested trying a weekend for the first time. The law allowed that, and in states that have weekend voting, we see dramatically higher turnout. Secretary Galvin made a calculated decision, and I think he's a very canny operator, to say that having this election on the first day of school in many communities, the day after Labor Day, uh, would depress turnout. And that's completely outrageous for a secretary of state who's already overseen a dramatic drop in turnout in our elections over the last two decades to do something like this. Um, it's clearly intended uh, to, I think, give him an advantage in this election. I think it's absolutely the wrong thing to do for any chief elections officer. We should be looking to increase opportunities to participate. Um, but I don't think it's going to work. I think folks have seen it for what it is. And I think the people who are energized and excited about this election, and that's not just in our race, that's across the board right now, are going to show up because people have seen from 2016, from what's happening in Washington, how important it is to vote and to participate. And we've seen across the country this past year how turnout rates, particularly in Democratic primaries, have gone up dramatically. And I know that folks see this for what it is and are ready to say enough is enough. The secretary also has the secretary's role, as I mentioned at the beginning, regulatory oversight, historical records, 
Are there anything in these arenas in which you think you could do something different? Yeah. Well, absolutely. I think uh, when it comes to the Mass Historic Commission, um, making sure that that is an entity, and uh, for those who don't know, it has preservation roles, but also administers the state's historic tax credit program, tens of millions of dollars a year. Um, needs to be a more transparent process. Needs to be uh, staffed by folks who respond uh, to inquiries when people are asking what documents are needed for an application, to find out the status of an application, particularly for nonprofit developers who are often building affordable housing that rely on these tax credits to be dragged on and on uh, with no resolution in, in place, and to also focus on projects that need these benefits. I think if you look at the record for uh, who has received the largest historic tax credits uh, from Secretary Galvin's office, you'll, it will be surprising um, because it's not small nonprofits. It's not affordable housing projects. It's not economic development projects in our gateway cities. It's things like the Liberty Hotel, a luxury development in Beacon Hill that's received millions and millions of dollars under this administration. And uh, I would certainly reprioritize where that money's going. So what do you say to people who are clearly either not paying attention in general because, you know, it's we're leading into summer and people sort of not focus until then, or they really are hearing for the first time the wide range of the responsibilities of this job, or have thought, well, he's been there so long. I mean, doesn't seem to be bad. Why, why do I change? <laughs> well, I think a lot of the campaign is about education, as you were just saying, about what the role is. But, you know, here's the thing. Massachusetts even in Massachusetts, even in this progressive state where we think things are going well. And, you know, Massachusetts as a whole is doing all right, but we should be leading. And it's not acceptable to be complacent with the status quo, especially when you look at what the status quo is, where we are falling farther and farther behind on some core democratic issues. You know, we in Massachusetts are... You mean small d when you say Small that. d, yes, I'm yes. sorry. Yes. Small, democracy yes. in general. The mm -hmm. fact that everyone should have a voice. And these reforms are nonpartisan. Um, you know, I think and oftentimes the populations that um, take advantage of them and that are more in the process are folks uh, who have been shut out over the years. And that should be everyone's goal. We should want full participation in our democracy. You know, we've come a long way from when you had to be a white male property owner to vote, but there are still unnecessary barriers like this 20-day deadline. And we need to address that. And we need to make it easier for people to, to participate. Uh, when would, if if he were to accept your invitation to debate, when would the next one be? When would you hope to have oh, that? I certainly, well, we have a convention uh, in about two weeks now. And so in that, you know, tape you played, Secretary mm -hmm. Galvin said he'd be ready to debate up until the convention. So I was uh, I was hoping to see him here uh, on the show, but unfortunately he chose not to appear. Mm -hmm. And um, that continues to be the case. Even just to be in the same room and answer the same questions uh, would be a breath of fresh air. So I look forward to uh, him finally responding to our invitations and I think respecting uh, the rights of the voters to hear our differing views and talk about our records and plans for the office. So, um, you know, I encourage him to reach out. My cell phone and my email number are on our website. Uh, as far as I understand, he doesn't have an email address, so I don't know. He's free to reach out to me uh, to talk to me about this. I know my campaign has reached out using the uh, info account that's available on his website. Um, I think it's a real uh, disappointment to a lot of the uh, folks who care about these elections that we have a candidate who, after 25 years, doesn't feel that he uh, owes anything to the voters to explain his record uh, or his plans for the office in the future. Well, I have to say, uh, however people are intending to vote, uh, we hold many conversations with candidates and have held over the years. I've reached out to many folks. We don't, do, per se, on, on under-the-radar do debates, but we'd like to have a, a good, vigorous conversation yeah. about everybody's viewpoint and perspective on the issues. I've never had a candidate not respond. They just say no, or I'm coming, or 
forget you, whatever, but never not respond. So I did want to put that on the table and just note that for the record. So I thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Boston City Councilor Josh Zakem is running for Secretary of State against William Galvin. The state primary is on September 4th. Coming up, Native American issues are at the center of local and national debate. We get historic and cultural context from Professor Philip Deloria, Harvard's new tenured professor in Native American history. That's next. This is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. And now for the part of the show we call Lanyap. That's Creole for something extra. From challenges to political sovereignty to debates about land rights and casinos to missing and murdered women and girls, news about Native Americans is at the center of local and national debate. That includes Massachusetts, where back in the 1600s, colonists first met Native populations like the Wampanoag, Pequot, Nip, Muck, Mashpee, and Pinnacook. Perhaps not surprisingly, many of today's issues are rooted in that fraught history, so we've asked an expert to help us frame the current issues through the lens of history and culture. Philip Deloria joined the history department at Harvard earlier this year as the university's first tenured professor in Native American history. And Professor Deloria joins me now here in the studio. Welcome to Under the Radar, Professor Deloria. Thanks so much. Glad to be here. I'm glad to have you. So first, I want to just um, let people know who you are uh, in the history department. You uh, uh, come from the Midwest, where you've been working for some time, but you have long roots, it seems, almost <laughs> everywhere. Uh, and uh, your work focuses on the social, cultural, and political histories of the relations among American Indian peoples and the United States. Your first book was called Playing Indian. It traced the tradition of white Indian play from the Boston Tea Party to the New Age movement, so right here in Massachusetts. And last year, you co-authored a book, American Studies, A User's Guide, and you're currently completing a project on American Indian visual arts of the mid-20th century. I also want to note that you're a trustee of the Smithsonian Institution's National Museum of the American Indian, where you chair the rep... rep per, all right, I'm going to get it out. Re, go re. Re, per, you say it. <laughs> Repatriations Committee. Thank you. <laughs> I knew I could get it out. And of course, you've been awarded num numerous prizes, um, and you are an elected member of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences, which is right here in Cambridge. So first, let's talk about the long history Harvard has with actually... Native Americans from an educational standpoint. I'm not sure that everybody understands. There's a charter, actually, from 1650, which pledges that Harvard will educate um, Indian youth. Would you talk about that a little bit? Sure. Mm -hmm. like, uh, like, like other schools in the colonial period, Harvard uh, has it written into its founding document, right, that it will serve Native youth. Dartmouth is also, you know, a school like that, um, you know, and there are others around. Of course, Harvard's, um, like many of these schools, Harvard's history was quite mixed on this sort of six students came early on. Most of them didn't actually survive Harvard. Um, sort of one graduate, really, who sort of stands for that moment of Native education in the, you know, in the colonial context. And that's Caleb. That's Caleb, mm -hmm. right, right. Um, there's a portrait of him on one of the walls of Harvard because uh, he did manage to be the first. Uh, he was Wampanoag, and the second Wampanoag person to graduate from Harvard was just in 2011. 
Well, it tells you about how these things play out. I mean, Dartmouth has a, has a perhaps an even more egregious story, not to put it off on some other place, right? But, uh, you know, Dartmouth, the funding for that institution was all about educating Native youth. And by the time it actually got into, into business, it was no longer about that. And in many, many instances across this history, there are moments where missionaries who go to serve a Native community will end up serving a white community, you know, instead. And so there's a general sort of drift from things which are focused on Native people to things which end up not really focusing on them, you know, at all. I should note that uh, Geraldine uh, Brooks, who's a novelist, wrote a very well-received book called Caleb's Crossing, which is about the first uh, Native graduate of Harvard University, the novelization of his experience there, which is really very informative. She did quite a bit of research about what was actually happening here in Cambridge when he first came to school here. So that's the background of the connection. So here you come, first tenured professor in Native American history. It's been a long time coming. You yourself are Dakota. What does this mean to you? What, what does this say? You know, I think it, it's, a, it's a really important moment to imagine a place like Harvard, which has certain kinds of reputational capital out there in the world, to, uh, on the one hand, uh, have, a, have had to take so long. Um, on the other hand, you know, it's nice to be here at this particular moment when I think Native issues really are central to thinking about the United States right now. And I'm hoping that Harvard will continue to build on on the things that I'm going to be trying to do. And, um, you know, the, the platform that is Harvard will be useful. And I should note, there have been Native faculty members here before, hmm. Lisa Brooks, Melinda Maynard-Lowry. So it's that subtle distinction between a sort of senior or tenured Harvard person and other folks who have passed through the Harvard orbit and have done really good work here, actually. So you're part of a continuum. Exactly. Okay. Um, well, now that you're here, <laughs> we can take advantage of your scholarship and, and your broad uh, expertise in all things historical and cultural as it relates to Native Americans to really look at some of the current issues that are out there. And I have to say, Professor, maybe I just have been asleep at the wheel, but it seems to me that in the last, I don't know, year or two, issues about sovereignty have really come to the fore. So it's being thrown around the word tribal sovereignty, political sovereignty. We here in Massachusetts are grappling with one issue with the Mashpee Wampanoags that also seems to bring those issues to the fore. I wonder if you could just explain what are we talking about? And mm -hmm. then let's look at what's happening with the Mashpee Wampanoags and maybe you mm -hmm. can shed a little cultural context on that. <laughs> well, it's it's one way to think about these kinds of things in the United States context is to think that in American Indian people are a racial group. Um, but that would actually, that's partly true, but American Indians have a unique political status in relation to the United States that no other group has. And you can trace that by going back to the Constitution. For me, there's always two or three different points in the Constitution. The three-fifths clause, which many people know because it identifies three-fifths of an unnamed but African-American slave, right, for purposes of discover, figuring out proportional representation. Um, people pay a lot of attention to that clause. They don't pay attention to the clause, the sentence right before it, which says, Indians not taxed, hmm. right, um, which suggests that there's such a thing as an Indian who could be taxed. That would be a person who would have given up a tribal national membership and become part of the United States. So that possibility is buried in the Constitution. Um, if you go to the Commerce Clause, and I'm not going to, like, dwell on the Constitution yeah, a lot, go, but a little don't bit. Don't go wonky on us. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not. <laughs> okay. But it's interesting. It says, you know, um, sort of manage relations between foreign governments, the states, and Indian tribes. 
And in that context, the tribe, Indian tribes are framed not as internal kinds of things like states, but as international kinds of things. So Indian people in the constitution are basically framed as being outside the constitution, as being separate political entities in their own right. And thus, the United States relationship with them has been about making treaties as we would make with any other foreign, non-domestic nation. And that's the kind of basis for thinking about American Indian political sovereignty, independence, right? Um, a series of legal decisions, congressional things over the course of the 19th century has whittled that down to the point where from the 1930s on, Indian people have been framed as domestic dependent nations. Mm. Um, that's a Supreme Court decision. So they're interior to the United States. The Bureau of Indian Affairs is in the Department of the Interior. Um, but they have a status that is also outside or peripherally outside. So that Indian land can be held in trust by the federal government for tribes. It has a different kind of status than other kinds of land. So this and Indian tribes determine their own membership. So in all these different kinds of ways, sovereignty is the linchpin for understanding the complicatedness of Indian country and the complexities of Indian relations with the federal government and with the state government and with local governments. So now onto a few, it seems to me, challenges to that sovereignty. So right here in Massachusetts, the Mashpee Wampanoags are somewhere betwixt, betwixt and between federal law and being named reservation, having that designation. And that puts them in a weird place so that they are perhaps not able to own a casino in Taunton. That's one of the issues. But it's bizarre. It also led to the Massachusetts congressional delegation putting together a very a narrowly focused law that would perhaps just put all of this aside for the moment and just get past and then we'll deal with it when, as someone says, there is some comprehensive legislation mm -hmm. to deal with many of the issues mm -hmm. you've just raised. But for now, that's where we are. The Boston Globe just editorialized about this. Give me your take about this and how are we who are trying to understand this? What should we be looking at when we look at this case? So there's a, there's a law in 1934, the Indian Reorganization Act. Just imagine a sort of long history of different forms of land loss and land alienation from Indian people, Indian land flowing to the federal government and then distributed to the states and to private entities and corporations. That happens over the course of the 19th century. In 1934, there's a kind of reversal of that, and it's an interesting moment in American history. What the IRA, this act, does is says, Secretary of the Interior can acquire land for Indian people. In other words, there's some land restoration is, is for the first time really made possible. And that land can become part of American Indian political sovereignty, of tribal sovereignty. It can become Indian land, trust land, Indian country. All these are ways of thinking about it. Indian country falls under federal jurisdiction, not state jurisdiction. So it's a unique kind of, kind of place. Okay, so there's 1934. Over the course of that 18th and 19th century history, many, many tribes and groups of people you know, sort of disappeared a little bit off the mm. landscape in terms of a continuous history of treaty making and resistance and warfare. And of course, uh, groups on the Atlantic seaboard were much more likely to have that happen than, say, people in South Dakota who kind of fought to the bitter end, were visible and recognizable by, you know, in 1900. So in the late 20th century, the United States started a process of tribal recognition, of restoring recognition to tribes who could show kind of continuous residency, continuous culture. So the Mashpee Wampanoags are, are one of those tribes. So the, the, the grounds of this basically, it's about the, the gap between 1934 mm. and 2007. So you can have tribal recognition, federal recognition on the one hand, 
And that should imply logically that the Secretary of the Interior can acquire lands for those groups of people who have federal recognition and that those lands can become trust lands. So what's at stake here is a, is a fairly narrow legal reading, you know, that says these folks were not considered Indian in 1934 when that act was passed, and therefore trust land cannot be acquired for them, including, for example, the parcel in, in, in Towton. So... Um, you know, that's what's at stake is a kind of narrow legal thing. The The Massachusetts bill is uh, is basically has three small provisions, which says, mm, as you said, let's step aside from this, mm. you know, for the moment, because this is a bigger sort of systematic problem as more tribes become recognized. And if they don't fall under the 1934 Act in terms of land and land management, you know, that is a problem. Yeah. Well, if you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and my guest is Philip Deloria. He's a professor of history at Harvard and the first tenured professor in Native American history. And I've asked him to here to respond to several recent issues in the news concerning Native Americans. All right, so to me, it comes up again if we look back to Standing Rock. So I had... Uh, members of local tribes here to discuss Standing Rock because that was the time if people remember we're in South Dakota this was a protest against the extension of the XL pipeline and it turns out that indigenous people from all over the world and the United States went there to stand with um, the folks from Standing Rock and um, non-native people did as well but part of their argument was you're trying to put a pipeline through land that we have sovereignty over. So why are we even having this discussion? Why are we even in court? Why are we having a demonstration? What is this? So put some context around that. I mean, that's a challenge to sovereignty. And yet in the end, fast forward, the federal government said, oh, no, we've spoken and we're putting the pipeline in and we're not recognizing what you say is your sovereignty. Right. Because as always in these cases, you know, there's just a little twist and a little turn that makes it, you know, complicated. So the sovereignty claim would go back to the 1851 Sioux Treaty, which outlines a massive territory as Sioux territory, Dakota, Lakota territory. Then there's an 1868 treaty. Then there is an 1875 extension of the reservation that goes up to uh, the Cannonball River. Then there's an 1877 agreement. So there's many of these kind of diplomatic sorts of things. What's most important in this, actually, is an act from the 1940s called the Pick Sloan Plan, which led to the damming of the Missouri River. And if you want to talk about environmental tragedies, this is should be first and foremost on our list, and we don't talk about it that much. But the folks at Standing Rock, remember, the building of these dams at Fort Berthold, at Standing Rock, this was going to be like the Tennessee Valley Authority for the Missouri River. Everywhere they built a big mainstream dam, they flooded out Indian land. They took Indian land. And one of the reasons why the Army Corps of Engineers was so involved in this is because this, where the pipeline was going to pass or passed, does pass, is a half-mile parcel of land which is managed by the Bureau, by the Army Corps of Engineers mm -hmm. as part of that reclamation project. So it's north of the reservation, even though its impacts, the impacts of the pipeline, are, of course, completely relevant mm -hmm. to the reservation. And they involve all of the complexities. The assertion of sovereignty involves all the complexities around these treaties and around this land. And I can get all wonky on you no, and give no. you a little bit more, <laughs> no. more detail. No, I'm just trying but, to understand. Um, it just keeps coming yeah. up. That's my point. Well, you know? and so, this is, so the native claim on this <laughs> yeah. was like, no, this is a sovereignty issue, right? And the nature of that sovereignty was um, we needed to be consulted as is the case with environmental impact statements, is this the case with relationships between right. government to government from the state governments and the federal government. So we needed to be consulted in an adequate kind of way. And, of course, the government said, yeah, we did consult you. But, you know, it didn't really happen. 
I think one of the outcomes, the pipeline was 95% built, you know, by the time the camps really, so getting it undone was going to be very difficult. But I think one of the goals for the National Congress of American Indians and others was to imagine a new kind of consultative relationship coming out of this that would take tribal sovereignty seriously on the administrative government side, rather than always having to go to court to demand certain things, because going to court at this moment in time doesn't actually play out that well for Native people. So my point in bringing that up and and just going back to that, I'm going to just play a clip from a Minnesota state representative, Sandra Erickson, because this is another challenge. It seems to me there's a challenge to sovereignty at every level. And this is about uh, contract schools. And you'll hear her talk about questioning whether, you know, if if there's sovereignty, then how can you do this? I'm just not it's just coming up all the time. So here's a clip from Minnesota State Representative Sonder Erickson arguing that Native Americans in, in Minnesota, she's not quite sure about their sovereignty. Here we go. Well, members, we can think of it this way. You know, if they're going to argue they're sovereign, then they don't have to take this money that we're uh, giving to them. This is a contract between Minnesota and these four schools. And Minnesota law considers them private schools. That's how they run it through their uh, Mars system. And I think we're doing a disservice when we don't consider that they have access to our education code. And uh, I think I believe my school personnel who've told me that, you know, these students are not being served in the way they should be for a continuing education if they are dismissed. So that's one challenge. I just want to put these two things on the table. Then the Trump administration is challenging sovereignty by saying tribes are a race. And so they're going to have to pay attention to new laws that the Trump administration is putting in place with regard to who gets Medicaid. Some may know that the administration has said they're requiring new work requirements for folks who get Medicaid. There's a lot of controversy about that. I don't want to go down that road. I'm just interested in this case uh, that they are have targeted Native Americans saying, well, you're not, you know, you're a race, so you're going to have to be in the pool with everybody else. And so if we say everybody has to do work requirements, and if you want to get Medicaid services, you must. And then here we have in Minnesota, she's saying, well, if you want to get this money for these schools, then what, are you sovereign or not? So put that, help us understand that. <laughs> right. So the history of tree making really establishes two pillars of the relationship between American Indian people and tri- tribes, right, and the federal government, right? The first is trust, is the trust relationship, which is that the federal government, um, after acquiring the entire continent, made a, an ongoing, a series of ongoing relationships and commitments to tribal people, to Native people, right? And so that trust relationship takes shape in all kinds of ways, but it's a federal obligation to the political entity, right, that is American Indian people. Now, the flip side of that is uh, the process or the the policy of self-determination, right, which is to say, as, you know, sort of nations, right, these people also need to be, have the right of self-determination to decide their own membership, to move forward with their own kind of plans and policies and programs. Now, those things may seem contradictory to the rep from Minnesota, but they are not. They are actually enshrined in a body of case law and administrative law. So for the Trump administration to go back and try to undo this, you know, is to undo, is to pretend as if this entire history just never happened. But in fact, it did happen. 
And the evidence of it happening is every time we walk on the land that is North America, right? A price was paid, and the price was a commitment to an ongoing kind of relationship. And this goes back to the 19th century when the federal government thought, well, Indians are in a less advanced stage of social evolution. They must be cared for, right? So the trust relationship comes out of that kind of thing. But it also comes out of the federal government claiming jurisdiction and authority over Indian people. So it's Indian people in this sense are not a racial group. Mm -hmm. They are a political group and they, you know, deserve and demand the complicated political relationship, right, that is is unfolded historically. So here's something that makes it very interesting then to consider all of that, and that is there are any number of Native Americans in many states, mostly West and Midwest, running for office. So there are tribal governments, but then there's obviously we're all citizens of the United States and they're running for office in many places. I want to just play a clip. This is from Deb Holland's political ad. She's among a historic number of Native American women running for elective office. I don't look like most people in Congress. My life is different, too. I pushed through college and law school as a single mom, and I'm 30 years sober. But struggle made me fierce. My work is to fight for all of us. Clean energy jobs, Medicare for all, no more corporate money in politics. Trump won't hand us a thing if we ask politely. I'm Deb Holland, and I approve this message because the old way isn't working. We must be fierce. Are you ready? So as I said, she's a number of people running for office. Paulette uh, Jordan is running in Idaho for governor. I mean, there's it's a wide range of folks, a lot of women, as we've said. How do you talk about being part of a sovereign nation, as we've discussed, and then now running for office in the broader context of being an American citizen? Right. I mean, I think it's just great. It's fantastic. As, as Mark Trahant pointed out, there were, uh, I think, 73 people running in 2016 in the 2016 He's elections. a noted uh, Native American journalist. Go ahead. Exactly. Yeah. Thanks. <laughs> Thanks for filling in. Yeah. I mean, you know, so we're, we we all live within nested sovereignties, right? We, um, you know, uh, we live within a city. We live within a town in Michigan, where I'm from, you know, yeah. used to be from, where we live within a township. We live within a county. We live within a state. We live within a federal, you know, kind of system. And in fact, we, you know, dare I I say it, we have certain kinds of international obligations, you know, as well. So each of us functions as a citizen across those different kind of registers. And tribal citizenship is just one more of those things. And um, in the same way that Native American people have been, for example, um, you know, early and frequent volunteers in the U.S. Armed Forces, right, American Indians to join in the U.S. political process is actually completely logical and is a very, very good thing. There's no divided loyalty here. There's only nested loyalties such as that all Americans have. What do you think it's going to mean if a number of these people win in terms of perhaps more of a highlighting of Native Americans and their constituency? Because in many places, it's just invisible. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think that's right. It can't help but make those kinds of issues and problems more visible and, and perhaps having a bit more attention in the same way that, you know, a rural legislator is concerned with rural kinds of issues as well as bigger, broader state or national kinds of issues. A tribal um, member who is elected, I think, would have that same kind of, that same kind of interest. Many of these folks really, um, you know, learned the business of politics in tribal politics and then jumped into the state level um, where there are a lot of Native 
state representatives, and then it's a quite logical thing for them to jump up to, you know, kind of the higher levels of representative office. My guest is Philip Deloria. He's professor of history at Harvard, the first tenured professor in Native American history. And we're talking about current events concerning Native Americans. So something that I think a lot of people may have heard about were two young Native students, high school students, who went on a college tour at Colorado State University. And um, one of the other people on the tour assumed them to be dangerous because they weren't saying anything. In fact, they turned out to be shy, and she didn't understand what they had written on their shirts, which turned out to be the names of metal bands like any other teenager would have. Anyway, it blew up into a controversy. So, um, And the president has responded and said, this is not who we are, and everybody is welcome here. But I brought that up because, first, it's a trend of lots of folks getting police called on them if they are deemed to be not in the correct place they're supposed to be, but also just in general about out in the world, misunderstanding or bias about, you know, Native American students. So this, they would be probably part of a small population at that school, even though they're in the West. Just wanted to get your comment on it. Yeah. You know, I watched the, I watched the video of the, the body cam on this and it's just sad, right? I mean, these, these, the, the younger of these kids is just obviously scared to death, you know, and, and I, you know, um, I've got friends who are police officers. I understand from them what it's like to sort of know that wherever you go, you know, you might run into trouble. And um, so, you know, the officers are polite, but there's a structure to policing. And we know that it doesn't always work that way, right? We know that the police are not always polite. Um, there's a structure to policing that is just, it, it, it's, it does not, it can do nothing but harm, right, um, to treat those, these kids, you know, uh, um, what's the, what was their crime? They were driving from New Mexico to Colorado State. They got there a little late. They joined the tour late. Um, so the, there's a, there's the issue of how the police dealt with them. I think the more pressing issue is the issue of the sort of white suburban mom who felt like these students were somehow out of place. And this is the problem that all Native students confront on every campus, right? Native people make up 1.7% of the U.S. population in almost every space. They make up a far smaller percentage than that. So it's not only that they feel themselves, you know, kind of alienated and isolated. It's that other people look at them and they say like, oh, well, why would you belong in this space? Because the numbers of you are just not here. We're just not even used used to seeing it. You know, I just looked at the pictures of those kids and my heart just, it was like a gut punch just watching this thing. You know, I mean, they were serious kids. They drove up. They were interested in art and music. One of them, the older one went to, uh, or the younger one went to the Santa Fe Indian School. uh, And they wanted to go to Colorado State. Well, you know, (laughs) I mean, there's no amount of VIP presidential tours of the campus that are going to make up for the experience that they had. And as we know, this is the common experience for bodies of color, of people of color, who are deemed to be out of place, who threaten spaces that are thought to be white spaces. Well, thank you very much, Professor. I hope this is the beginning of uh, many other discussions while you're here. (laughs) It's been a pleasure chatting. Thank you. Philip Deloria is a professor of history at Harvard. He is the first tenured professor of Native American history at the university. Well, that's it for this edition of Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. Join us next Sunday at 6 p.m. for the stories you may have missed. In the meantime, you can find our show, links to stories we discussed today, and bonus content on the web at news.wgbh.org UTR. Listen to our show on the WGBH app and take UTR with you. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. Please write to us at undertheradar at wgbh.org. Our engineer is Doug Sugars. Vakanda Loin Gaffe is our producer. 
Under the Radar is a production of WGBH.